Welcome once again to Cinemaholics. This is a special bonus review where we are talking Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I am not on this island of female utopia alone because that wouldn't make sense. Uh, I, of course, am joined, me, John Agroni, your usual host, by first, she is a former Cinemaholic who is returning after a long absence as a freelance writer slash painter, it's Julia Tady. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me back, John. I'm so excited to be here. So excited to have you here. Hope you've been loving New York City. Loving it so much, but not as much as I would be loving being on an island, painting my heart away, surrounded right. by a bunch of women. Yes. Well, yeah, New York has way too many dudes for that. Uh, we have a special a special guest who has written for Cinemaholics before. However, this is her first time on the podcast, and it absolutely will not be her last, uh, depending on how this goes. It's Emily Kubin-Kinek, freelance writer, senior contributor at Film School Rejects, and film history lover. Emily, how are you doing? Good. Thank you guys for having me on. Thank you for agreeing to do this. And finally, of course, he's my usual co-host on the main show, and uh, you haven't heard from him, you haven't seen his face, because he is a male character in the movie Portrait of a Lady <laughs> on Fire, it's Will Ashton. Yeah, that's right. I make a cameo at the beginning, <laughs> and then you never see me again. That's right. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Uh, very excited to talk about this movie with you all. Now, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, for some of the listeners who may not be aware this is a French movie that premiered last year. I think it was at TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival. I think it was Cannes, right? Oh, maybe yeah. it was Cannes. And then it played at TIFF. And it so it made the festival circuit. And so people, critics, audiences were watching it last year. And it was getting tons and tons of acclaim. I know a Cinemaholics guest in the past, Val Complex, had a chance to watch the film at Cannes, and she absolutely adored this movie, has been championing it for a long time now. And it finally got its limited release, definitely not a wide release, here in the United States over Valentine's Day. So we've been meaning to do a special review of Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I saw this toward the end of December, and I kind of talked about the film a little bit, but now all four of us have seen it, so we're going to be able to talk about it in a little bit more detail, because it really is, it was in, it was in my top 10 of the year. I think it was my number four film. And it made a lot of people's top 10 lists, as you'll sort of know, as uh, if you may remember from that episode, maybe maybe a person or two in this very podcast room. Uh, but let's let's talk about uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Now, Emily, this is your first time on Cinema Hogs. We're excited you're here with us. So you get the honors. You get to tell us, OK, who made the movie? What What's the deal? Why should why should anyone care Portrait of a Lady on Fire? What is it? Yeah, so it is a movie by Celine Sciamma. Um, she made Girlhood and Water Lilies and Tomboy. Um, like you said, it's a French movie about a French painter, Marianne, who travels to this remote island to paint this woman, um, Eloise. Um, but the trick is that she doesn't want to be painted because it's being sent to this guy that she's supposed to marry. And so Marianne has to paint her in secret and they end up in a beautiful and um, turbulent love affair. Yes, it is a love affair for the ages. That is for sure. So, okay, so that's the basic plot and we will be doing this spoiler free. Starting with you, Julia, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, what'd you think? I, I, were you a fan of this movie? Absolutely. I think that when you mentioned one of the two or maybe a few of us who are on this podcast tonight um, who had this movie in their top 10, I believe Portrait of a Lady on Fire was actually in my top five of mm. 2019. I absolutely loved Celine Siama's vision of this film between Portrait of a Lady on Fire, actually, and I believe I talked about this on Twitter, between the film, this film in particular, and 
the last black man in San Francisco, these were two of the absolutely most stunning films that I had seen on a visual level from 2019. But speaking more personably about Portrait of Lady on Fire, I think that it was beautifully written and executed by the director, wonderfully performed by the two lead actresses. And it all brings this beautiful love affair that Emily was talking about to just a a simmer, then to a boiling point. And then it just bubbles over with just absolute adoration and passionate love between these two women. And I think it's just visually, it's absolutely stunning contextually within the world that it's living in, how it has basically no men in it, but it still has this perception of the male gaze within it. And the patriarchy still kind of, um, penetrating it almost to use like a very intense term. Um, it's it's just so beautifully thought out. It's so meticulous. And much like um, Valerie Complex, who you brought up, who's such an incredible writer, who I don't think we can talk enough about as just an incredible champion for these kinds of movies. Um, it's, it's one of the best movies of 2019, not just within the realm of um, American cinema, but in international cinema. It's one of the best that was offered in the year. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned the cinematography there. Got to shout out Claire Mathon, who also worked on Atlantics, which I think won a few awards for cinematography. And uh, Atlantics, one of the best movies of 2019, in my opinion. But I liked Atlantics. Yes, good movie. Wasn't my favorite, but definitely one I appreciated a lot, and especially her cinematography and and her vision in general, visually. Yeah, and, and we should mention maybe as a as an aside here, as we're talking about the movie, worth pointing out that Portrait of a Lady on Fire did not get any Oscar nominations because instead France selected a different film called Les Miserables to be its selection for Best International, formerly known as the Best Foreign Language Film, at the Oscars this year. A lot of reasons we could look into for that, one of them being this is Neon and Parasite, Uh, was a neon film and so france might have thought oh there's no chance that neon is going to help us like win this award so we might as well put up les miserables which wouldn't be competing with parasite studio versus studio that's my conspiracy theory but either way big shame because i think this film was worthy of many many awards not just that one including best picture but you know I, I suppose uh, that is that is a uh, a discussion for another day. I hope at least a few of you can agree. But moving on, um, Emily, what did you think of Portrait of a Lady on Fire? And how long ago did you get a chance to see this one? Um, I loved it. Um, when I went to New York Film Festival, I didn't get to see it. And so it had a limited run here in New York City in November, which I saw with um, Julia. Um and then I saw it on Valentine's Day too. Um, but with Julia, yeah. I hope. <laughs> no, um, but I loved it too. I mean, I think emotionally it was just so moving to watch two people um, kind of fall in love in a way that we don't always get to see. I think this movie is historical in a lot of ways. Um, it's about a lesbian couple um, made by a lesbian filmmaker and um, which is hard in like, like Julia said, um, mainly women um, in the film, very few men. Um, so I think like from a historical standpoint, it's really interesting to me and like, it's just so beautiful. Um, the art in it, not even just the paintings, but the music and they talk about the literature and stuff. It's just gorgeous in every way. You mentioned that Skiyama is a lesbian filmmaker. And although we're also worth pointing out that Adele Hanel, who plays Eloise, uh, she and her were in a relationship for years, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, And you can kind of tell that this movie is really fixated on Eloise. Like you can tell the director is like, in love with this person uh Mm -hmm. this is probably the most 
lusty camera I've ever seen in, in, a, in a film, at least recently. So uh, that that was an interesting touch the, there, like some kind of like, oh, only happens in the movies that this sort of thing can work out. Mm-hmm. But out of all of us, Will has seen this the most recently. Will Ashton, you literally just drove back from the theater. Yep. You are as fresh on Portrait of Lady on Fire as can be. Tell us all about why you hate it and why you think we're wrong. <laughs> oh man, no. I mean, I don't want to. I don't. I don't have that perception, thankfully. Uh, yeah, I'm still caught in the, uh, I guess, bliss of first love with the movie. So the afterglow. Ooh. Yeah. So I haven't had the reflection uh, that the main character has in the film yet. But yeah, no, I, I definitely have to echo everything that's been said. It's just such a delicate movie and so gorgeous in simplicity. And yet, through that simplicity, I feel like there is so much. Uh, layer in text and emotion that comes out and it feels you know like we were saying very picturesque like it's framed very delicately framed very precisely yet there is so much emotion and so much you know passion and feeling through every shot and frame and performance and it just really just yeah I mean I wasn't fully blown away from the beginning like I was it took me a little bit like maybe like 15 20 minutes to really get soaked into it but once I did I really was taken by and I think this might honestly be without exaggeration my favorite ending for any movie from 2019. And there's three endings so I'm not true, even yeah. sure which one you're talking and that's about because the they're yeah, all no, amazing. Like, that's the thing is that like when it like each ending happening, I was, you know, I was thinking that too. Yeah. It's like, oh, we're, we're still going. It. But it's like, but each ending was like, you know, like, damn, that's a good ending. And then like the next one's like, that's an even better ending. Yeah. It's like, why do they keep going? And then like the next ending is like, oh, this is perfect. So I, I hope we have time toward the end of the show to talk about those endings in a little bit more detail. And of course, we will give you all the spoiler warnings in the world. But yeah, so it, this is one of those those shows. This is one of those reviews where we're all sort of on the same page here there's there's nobody being troublesome uh no uh no negative devil's advocacy this this film really is just a a triumph and it's it's impossible to put down um i found myself totally wrapped up in it and for a lot of different reasons i think that again we can't say enough about how striking the cinematography is the the colors are so rich and vibrant they they made me think about you know how how they obviously tend to symbolize the way that our our lives like at that age when we felt like everything was bright and the future was ahead of us and everything had such contrast and it's easy to look to watch this movie is like people who are slightly older now that's all of us and be like ah those days are a little bit gone aren't they <laughs> but uh this this film really works as as that memory uh, a lot of films that this one had me thinking about over the course of it and in the aftermath of watching this movie, I've, I've thought a lot about this and one of my other favorite movies of 2019, which is Parasite, because both films dabble so much in the idea of metaphor and how important and crucial metaphor is to our lives. In Portrait of a Lady on Fire, metaphor for that movie gets in all sorts of territory for for love and for love at first sight and for longing and these simple moments between these two leads just like studying each other with different agendas and in that movie the the metaphor is more internal whereas parasite was more about external metaphors and how metaphor itself kind of affects the human spirit it's about capitalism and it's about uh, how society is oppressing us. And that's sort of the case here too. Like that is in the background that society is forcing these women to be in a situation where they can't really be themselves until they're able to shed like their symbolic corsets, right? And at the same time, their metaphor is more internal. It's more about how the human spirit experiences metaphor, how you know, all throughout, it could have been a very simple laid back romance between these two women, but instead it's also about the creativity of uh, Marianne as this painter who uh, her visions and the, the way the story of Ophelia kind of like wraps up into this movie's narrative and the way that she has all these visions of, of the actual lady on fire. And I just had so many like, yes, that's how creativity works. And that's how creativity and emotional longing sort of intersect. And just talking about this movie gets me super excited and I love it. And I think we all agree on that. So let's 
let's get into a little bit of discussion on this movie. I want to know a little bit more about your specific thoughts in the movie. Now, Julia, you mentioned a little bit more about the female gaze. You talked about uh, very specifically the difference between the female gaze and the male gaze. Uh, how did this movie differ, though, for you compared to other movies that have sort of gone into this subject? We've seen uh, lots of LGBTQ romances before. Call Me By Your Name is one of the most prominent of the last few years. But what helps Portrait of Lady on Fire stand apart by your estimation? Well, to be quite honest, I actually feel like I have to be very frank with the listeners and say that LGBTQIA plus cinemas, there are certain films that I definitely have blind spots to that I need to fill those spaces and do more research and bear witness to more stories. So I would like to do more of that in the future. But when talking about Portrait of a Lady on Fire specifically, as I mentioned before, I definitely felt when Emily and I saw it, though there were predominantly female figures on screen, female characters interacting with one another, speaking with one another, living and demonstrating their lived experiences with one another, there was definitely in certain moments that feeling of the male presence still penetrating their lived experiences. And it was very frustrating because it still just signifies to so many audience members that are still watching that no matter what space women are occupying when the patriarchy is ruling there is still that sense of overwhelming kind of um oh what's the word i'm looking for it's kind of being held within this pen you're able to live so far as the boundaries can extend for you and for Eloise and for Marianne, and even for the young woman who is the servant within the household, whose name I'm unfortunately forgetting, but who plays such a pivotal role within certain experiences that these women have. Her name is uh, Sophie. She's played by Sophie. Luana Bajrami. Wonderful. Thank you so much for helping me out with that. But just these, the space that these three women are taking up, it's still is definitely very prevalent and we can get into very specific scenes and there are certain scenes that I definitely want to talk with you and with Emily and with Will about that definitely left our, at least for me and Emily, it left our theater in a very interesting position during some of those experiences. But for me, at least watching this film, it demonstrated kind of this haven that these two women were able to create in each other's company while still having to maneuver and experience the patriarchy and the societal constraints that wrap themselves around each other and put them on canvases and paint them in the image that society wants to see them in. Yeah, you can almost feel like these women are haunted a little bit by how they're in sort of like a fantasy island where everything is like there's a little bit of just doom to their happiness, even in the moment. And it's frustrating as the viewer because you just want them to exist and be themselves and sort of exist in this bliss. But there's always like that knocking on the door of this can't last forever. And I, I hope that's what Sakyama was going for. That's what it feels like of like, yes, like the, the pressures of society will always get in the way of true human expression. But yeah, Emily, did you have a take on that? Um, and then specifically how how the movie just sort of took you um, or how you were able to take the movie in a different way compared to some of the other films that it might get more easily or even lazily compared to? Yeah, I mean, I think Julia made a good point of like the looming presence of the patriarchy, but I feel like in a lot of movies that deal with two women in a relationship um, they kind of back them away from being in a relationship, not because of um, societal restraints, but just as more of an erasure of like their relationship. And I feel like this one didn't do that. Um, I think like everyone knows that they, that the love that they share for each other is not gone. Um, even if they are separated Um or, um, yeah. And so I think like it, that does a really great job and it was different than some of the other, um, LGBTQ 
stories that I've seen. And I think, again, like it's really important that it was made by a woman because I think it could easily be compared to Carol and um, Lewis is the warmest color or blue is the warmest color, even though they all have such different feelings and um, tones to them. And this one stands out to me. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned both of those movies. Cause I think blue is the warmest color, such an easy film to point out the difference between like the queer female gaze and sort of like, this is a movie made to enact nothing but pleasure from heterosexual people mm-hmm. and uh, men in particular. Whereas I do think Carol is a skews a little bit closer to a more like uplifting. Like I like how that film actually avoids some of the other tropes from LGBTQ films that are like, oh, let's throw all of these misery things at these characters. And that happens a little bit in this movie, but not to the point that like feels oppressive. It actually, it feels true to life, but at the same time, there's so much freeing and there's so much life to be lived in this film that it didn't bother me on that level, especially. And uh, yeah, we could, we could talk all day about just all the different scenes in this movie that allow these women to, it, it like, I think, in my opinion, the sexiest scenes are when they are just together, not actually having sex. Like they are just together. Yeah. Like just lounging around. And like that intimacy is so much more like appealing and appealing in a different way, not appealing in a sensual way, but appealing in a, like that is the life to be lived way, like aspirational. Emotional for sure. Hmm. Okay, Will Ashton, uh, we we've been talking a lot. We've been we've been going over this, and I want to I want to pick your brain a little bit because you mentioned okay. the simplicity of this film, and sure. you know, Skiama she's she's known for her films being a little bit more minimalist. So could you could you like elaborate for our listeners who may not be familiar with the film like Girlhood, for example? Well, what did you mean by that? And like the simplicity of this film, why do you think that was effective or why not? Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, to be fair, I think I've only seen girlhood of her films prior to this one. So I can only really okay. compare it to that one. But um, yeah, I mean, just in respect to that, I feel that, I mean, like we were mentioning the movie, there's definitely a sense of like, there is something a little taboo about the relationship. There is that presence that they will probably never fully get to commemorate their love, but I think what really stuck out to me was just the core humanity of their relationship and just that sense of passion, like I was saying, and that that romance that doesn't feel like there's any sort of judgment from the filmmaker or any sense of like guilt or um, anything that would temper with one's feelings towards what how they should feel about that other than just accepting them for who they are and realizing that there is something very delicate and very beautiful between them and recognizing that these are just two young people who really just have this intimate connection from just similar backgrounds and different backgrounds in some respects, but also just having this sort of like intimacy where even just looking at each other, they tend to know each other and just have that sense of longing and connection. And I think that's basically where I'm going for with that is just that it just gets that core humanity of their relationship in a way that feels very accessible and very sweet and sincere. And I think, Anyone who does accept the movie and its values and its messages will, I think, recognize that and see just for and appreciate what I mean is that for that relationship. I do you think it's worth pointing out that you watch this film with your expectations sky high? <laughs> and I know you've heard a, you've heard a lot of great things already. So it's it's cool to hear, though, that you you got so much out of it, uh, considering because that can be hard sometimes to, to watch something when everyone's like, it's amazing. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Julia, you mentioned that there were some scenes maybe you wanted to get into, some specific things that maybe we haven't got into yet. I mean, there's so much of this movie. Like, we haven't even touched on a third of what's packed into this movie. I know some people might, you know, look at this look at this entire thing and be like, there's so many pauses and it takes forever for the relationship to happen. You know, those complaints that don't make any sense. Uh what do you think, though? Uh, what What are some of these specific things that work for you in the movie? Um, what I, I would definitely say something that's introduced in the latter half of the film in a scene between Eloise and Marianne and Sophie 
is this introduction of the metaphor of, um, I think it's, I'm not sure, I'm going to butcher this, um, this pronunciation, but Eurydice and Euryphrys. Eur- uh, Orpheus Eur- and Eurydice. Orpheus and Eurydice. And this introduction of the story of how Orpheus is forced out of the underworld and he cannot look back at Eurydice to see her and if he does she is forever trapped within the underworld and he sees her in this beautiful white dress and I don't want to get into unless we're allowed to get into a kind of spoiler. We gotta talk about it later yes because yes this this has a lot to do with the film's third act so I want to I want to table part of that discussion. I won't go into a lot of that but I will say that the introduction of that as you were you were introducing before these ideas of metaphors and physical metaphors that kind of separate it from a lot of the other films that were introduced in 2019 I think that this verbal metaphor of this Greek mythology that uh, is introduced just from storytelling between these three women and having to go over the story over and over again and trying to dissect it and understand why certain figures make their decisions. It plays a huge role into the film at its pivotal conflict. And at the very end, it definitely has a lot of mirroring that I think Skiyama just demonstrate just brings to life so, so beautifully in a visual way and just a linguistic means and contextually, I think that she brings that to life. Um, There are other parts of the movie that I think I would definitely like to get into. As I was saying, I'm not sure how far we can get into certain spoilers. Um, Where can we go at this point? Good question. Well, I'll let you think on that. I want to bring up something that has been weighing on me, and I, I want to get your take on it. Uh, and that that's sort of, I've been thinking about romance stories in the 21st century and why why queer cinema has been so different and in a way that, that feels like it's becoming more and more refreshing and authentic. And one of the things that I noted was that you know, we have a hundred years of films that are about straight people following falling in love. And I think that if you look at some of the films, the, the queer films that have come out in the 21st century, and as that has become less and less taboo, and as filmmakers have felt more free to actually dive into these stories, what we're seeing is a, an evolution of how homosexual relationships are very, very different from heterosexual relationships. In one sense, there are movies that do celebrate that like love is love and that a homosexual relationship can can be as swelling and cinematically satisfying as a heterosexual one. But what I love about films like this one, which shares some of the same sort of like uh, DNA as Call Me By Your Name in that respect, is that it actually shows you like, what is different about a homosexual relationship? As somebody who's watching it who's never been in one, you get a sense of like, for example, when you are in a relationship with someone who is the same gender as you, that power dynamic and the same age as you, by the way, which is a huge difference between this and Call Me By Your Name, these women are much more on equal footing. You have this much different dynamic because there's no power dynamic necessarily. Uh, there might be, but it's it's different or negligible. And when these women are together, laying around, feeling completely free, both visually and in the way they talk to each other, that's an advantage. That is like a perk of a homosexual relationship that not enough films are brave enough to point out. Because I I suppose that like some people and audiences who are straight are like, what? No, like our relationships are so great because that's the one I've been in. And so that's something that I fully appreciated about this film is that Skiyama revels in what she considers like, this is what's great about being an LGBTQ. Like you are able to like be in a type of relationship that has all kinds of excellent, uh, I, I want, I keep saying advantages, but maybe that's not even the right word, but just like quirks or just things about it that are just beautiful and beautifully different. Um, I would say, There are certain parts of your um, analysis that I agree with, but at the same time, I feel like 
in bringing up so many of these other LGBTQIA plus films, I think that we have grown, especially now with this introduction of so many, it seems like so many films because there has been just such a drought of these types of movies for so long that we feel like we're in this swell of LGBT, LGBTQIA plus cinema. But honestly, there are a lot of uh, those types of films that revel also in the tragedy of those types of relationships yeah. and demonstrate yeah. that even if these connections are built, they do not last very long and something happens to one partner or the other, or there's a conflict that we do not see resolved until it might be off screen. Something like Carol or something like call me by your name introduces something like that. Um, so with a port portrait of a lady on fire, I mean, there are these instances where these two women are able to revel in their beautiful relationship, but I don't think that it's meant to indicate any differentiation from heteronormative relationships. I think it's meant to demonstrate a kind of normalcy between demonstrating intimacy and romance as a singular language, regardless of whom you're sharing it with. And I think that that's a beautiful thing that Celine Schiama brings to the screen and develops with a language that's very universal visually and within her script as well. Yeah. I, I, I think, I think that both things can be true. Cause I agree that there is like a universality to the way this film presents like true love and that that level of it can be enjoyed between any of these people, regardless of their sexual identity or sexual orientation. I think what I find different is that it's just expressed in a different way, but it's that same universal truth. And that this film sort of celebrates in some ways, though you bring up rightfully that it does sort of like meander into the the trope of queer tragedy. Um, it still, I think, celebrates that it, there is like a difference. Like it's not the same type of relationship that we've seen in lots of movies before. And yeah, I mean, that's a big discussion, I suppose, but um, getting more into things that are specific to this movie, uh, I especially enjoyed the the sort of prickly romance between the two leads. We can talk about that more as well. Um, but yeah, Emily, what, what did you think of the central romance? Um, give you a chance to harp on that. And like, um, what, what's your take on the, how this relationship manifests and the way that it's written and what may work or might not work for that uh, in your opinion. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned that some people say that it pauses and takes too long, but I feel like this grows so naturally on screen um, in specific instances. And I feel like that is remarkable to me. And even though that they don't have the gender dynamics that I think heterosexual relationships have, I think they both challenge each other in a way that is so fascinating to watch. Um, I think my favorite scene is when um, Eloise kind of makes it known to Marianne that like, yeah, you are watching. I didn't know that you were a painter. I didn't know that you were a critic. Well, no, like you are watching me, but who do you think that I am watching? And like the fact that you are the subject of the film or the painting, but you are also, um, the painter is the subject of, to the subject, if that makes sense. Um, and so like, they are both, um, getting to know each other without really recognizing it. And I felt like that was so fascinating to me, um, in this film. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. This film is just a well, of so many great ideas and like things that like you just don't think of day to day creatively that are so true. But uh, yeah, I guess as we're sort of maybe winding down, cause I, I get the feeling that we're getting closer to spoiler stuff. Uh, Will, we've talked a lot about the central romance, uh, give you a chance to weigh in as well. Is there anything that, that you wanted to add or subtract or divide or multiply? What are you thinking? Uh, no, I mean, I'm pretty excited to talk about spoilers, so I think we shouldn't delay it any longer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but before we do, uh, Julia, was there anything you wanted to add? Um, nothing in particular. I would just say to any 
of our devoted listeners who are listening to this particular episode seek out this movie, whether you pay just like maybe $3 to rent it or you can go see it at your local art house cinema. It's so well worth your time. It's one of the most visually stunning movies of 2019. I just can't recommend it enough. I have to be honest with you all. Got a very sad bit of news. I still haven't seen this on the big screen. I saw it on a screener. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. I, I'm Emily gonna, I'm is trying. taking a sip of her red wine right now <laughs> after you said that. Oh, is it like Ana de Armas taking a sip from the coffee mug and knives out? It's I deserve worse. that. Oh no. Uh, okay, before we get into spoilers, let's get into our final grades for this film because of numbers and grades and all that fun stuff. Uh, I, I think this film is a, just uh, a bit of a masterpiece in the making, and I wouldn't be surprised if more and more people agree on that over the years. I just think it's a love story for the ages, and it captures things about what's great about love and creativity in in so many levels uh we could talk about this movie for hours and to me that's a sign of a film that is worth giving the big old a so i give portrait of lady on fire an a enthusiastically and for all of time so that's an a for for me uh what about you julia what was your grade on portrait i have to piggyback off of what you said many of your comments um, it's definitely an A for me, just off of visually how stunning it is. The directorial efforts of Celine Sciamma are just very organic and beautiful and so well adjusted to her style of filmmaking. I think that the story between Eloise and Marianne is so specific to their journeys as young women in a patriarchal constraint within a period piece. Um, it's, and then just beyond that, that, visually what it does, metaphorically what it does within Greek tragedy, it's 100% an A for me. Absolutely. All right. So two A's so far. Emily Kubin, Kanek, uh, tell us all about your B minus. <laughs> Can I give it an A plus? Cause I want to do that. A plus is a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, was so moved by this movie in a way that I feel like I haven't been in any movie that I've watched since. And um, so I think it is a masterpiece, uh, like you said. I'm glad we were able to talk about it in so much detail, too. It, it's it's wonderful to have all of you here and uh, even just scratching the surface of what there is to talk about this movie. But Will Ashen, you know, it's it's tough. I don't expect you to have agreed to this movie quite yet. You can abdicate if you want. You <laughs> just watched it. I get it. But if you do have a great offer, even one that you're sort of like, ah, hey, this is what it is for now. And uh, I know I could already tell you were crossing out B minus and your notes. And uh, yeah, that's fun. And also, yeah, do you think this is a contender for your top 10 of the year? Where, where are you at, Will? Yeah, um, I'd say right now I'm at A minus. Uh, Hi, Maya. So, I mean, like you said, I still have to think about it a little bit more. I might honestly move up to an A, but yeah, I mean, I definitely would consider it in my top 10. I'm not quite sure where I'd put it yet. I'll probably have to sleep on it and then change my ranking one way or another, but undoubtedly it's high up there. Great here. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> it's a, a bit of a full house on this movie. And with that, we're going to get into some spoilery details. Uh, we're going to talk about the specifics, the including the ending. So if, or the endings, sorry. So if you do not want to be spoiled on a portrait of a lady on fire, it's currently playing in theaters nationwide. Not a ton of them, but if it's not playing in your area, like Julia was mentioning, if it's not playing in an art house cinema near you. Uh, please, please, please give this a look. Once it hits rental streaming, pay-per-view, whatever it takes, uh, I think it's worth your time. If you are unable to see it on the big screen, I will be doing my best to check to the movie theaters that are playing out here in the San Francisco Bay Area. There are a few still playing it. Uh, I just haven't had a chance. Uh, there's some other movies that are on my list at the moment that I'm trying to trying to weave my way through the quite a tumultuous February and March of cinema. So with that, let's talk about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
in more detail. I know, Julia, you're chomping at the bit, champing maybe. Uh, what is what is something about this film in more spoilery detail that you want to address first? Well, since you asked, um, when Emily and I went to go see this beautiful picture, there was a certain scene, a certain moment, and now that we're into spoilers, I feel comfortable explaining this moment to the listeners who have seen it as well as for the other folks who are on this podcast right now. There's a scene where Eloise and Marianne accompany Sophie who's been their wonderful servant throughout the film to essentially not essentially she's getting going through a procedure to um, abort a pregnancy. And when Emily and I went to go see portrait of a lady on fire during this specific scene where Sophie is very vulnerable, both Eloise and Marianne are in positions where they are incredibly vulnerable because they are, bearing witness to this experience that this young woman is having that they themselves may or may not have to experience in their lifetime. There was a lot of very interesting reactions to what we were watching on screen. And some people even started laughing, which made me and Emily feel incredibly uncomfortable. And we didn't know if it was because of some people, their reaction to seeing something or hearing something that makes them feel uncomfortable. They laugh as a sort of reflex to deflect from that sort of inclination. But at the same time, we were very kind of put off by the whole situation. I don't want to speak for Emily, but I think that I can say very um, adamantly that we were both very put off by that whole experience because it was very frustrating for both of us as young women to bear witness to an experience that we both know is very real, is very vulnerable, is very true and honest, and then have it depicted again when um, Marianne decides, Marianne at the behest of Eloise draws this kind of replication of Sophie getting this abortion. And it's kind of one of these very first, at least under my impression, these very first drawings of a young woman having an abortion done um it was just a very interesting experience to be sitting in a theater and have you know this male as i was saying before the male gaze the patriarchy is still very much penetrating the screen and the scenes of many of any time these women are together and especially in this circumstance and then to have that doubled down by laughter that was being had by a couple of the members of the audience. And I was just wondering, I could open it up. Our listeners can talk about it in the comments, but I just wanted to see what each of you thought about that sort of response to something that was definitely a traumatic scene, not only for the characters that were participating in it, but also for some of the audience members that may have been bearing witness to it. Yeah. I want to hear from Emily first too. Like what was, what was your reaction um, I was struck by it. I've, I've had this experience, um, in other screenings too, where I think if a scene is tense or uncomfortable in a way the, the audience laughs and, um, it kind of takes me out of it. Um, but also I think it speaks to the fact that Celine puts a scene um, in the film that audiences aren't used to seeing in such a way it's, there's a frankness to it. Um, and I think a lot of people weren't prepared for that. Um, and so that's my theory of why people were laughing. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't even imagine though. And I guess it kind of reminds me. So I saw the invisible man, last night mm -hmm. and there were a couple of scenes in that movie where people were laughing when it was something that was clearly not like a humor thing and that's exactly yeah. what i was thinking about too really okay <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of uncanny i guess i don't know I, I think what i was feeling in that scene was definitely not laughter i felt a sort of like uh a controlled empathy for all three of these women who I feel like we've been following and following and something that had struck me that hasn't really left me since I saw this, cause it's been a couple months since I've seen this. So like the details are sort of fuzzy, but I do remember wondering to myself, are Marianne and Eloise 
feeling sorry for Sophia in this moment? Are they still sort of selfishly seeing her as a servant and only viewing her trauma through a sort of an avatar for their own? Or is it, is it all, could it be something where they're, they do genuinely love Sophie and they don't look down on her and they're just sort of feeling for her in this moment. They're feeling this, like, like this paradise they've constructed in their heads is sort of still like, uh, I think Julia, you said it best in terms of still being penetrated by the patriarchal systems that they are still feeling like imprisoned by almost. Uh, it's it's hard to say. And yeah, even, even starting that conversation and I'm, I'm still like all the metaphors are swirling through my head. It's like, ah, the island islands are a prison, but they're also viewed as places we go for vacation and like, oh my gosh, like all the layers. But uh, I don't know. What do you think? Well, going back to the earlier point. Yeah. I mean, I know definitely my audience wasn't responding with laughter to that scene in particular. And I never even thought of it as a, anything close to a comedic scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know from past experiences of you guys, as you two, three have mentioned that, um, there's been times, like, I think one that I can remember was seeing widows and there was like a couple moments in there where audience members were laughing and I found that really off-putting, uh, it seems that were definitely not meant to be funny, but like, uh, happy time murders and <sighs> like literally all those scenes. Well, I mean, your experience with happy time murders was quite unique. I mean, <laughs> I don't know if we need to go into your screening of happy time murders but um long story short it was uh, different <laughs> i think what was happening in the audience was more in uh strange and absurd than anything that was happening on screen if that's fair to say uh if i remember that correctly that story but um no i mean that scene i i can't really think of any other movie where i've seen a scene quite like that and i didn't really know how to respond to it in the moment but i was really touched by um, just the meta commentary of that, where uh, I think, Julia, you were mentioning that, like having a scene like that, like where the central character is like drawing this piece of art that's never really been drawn or very rarely been drawn in that point. And then there's something like this where in a movie, I'm sure there's been scenes like this before, but it feels very rare and it feels very vulnerable and personal in a way that um, I was really struck by that commentary. And like I said, like it's just a such a simple approach but it has so much layers and it's so eloquent and unique and gentle and um i was really struck by that so i don't know if that answers your question i feel like i'm, I'm kind of touching on five points at once once but uh, i hope it does julia how have we failed you you haven't failed me at all no i really appreciate those responses i just really have to double down on what will was saying though because i completely agree with him i don't really feel like we have as in the royal we of general audiences in American cinema have really borne witness to a kind of experience of seeing a very early on, I don't know if it would be like considered an 18th century mm. abortion procedure performed on screen or done on screen in a performance aspect by, act by actors, but it's just, it hit in such a way that maybe it hit me and Emily different because we have some baseline or foundational knowledge of what women have experienced in the past when trying to seek out those types of procedures. But it just hit in a very real way whenever, for me at least, when people were trying to sustain this controlled laughter to themselves maybe to deal with the awkwardness of this situation where it demonstrated to us that this hasn't been normalized enough in our society and seeing these types of images and watching Sophie have to have this procedure done while she's laying on a bed right next to an infant and just doubling down on that insistence of patriarchal constructs telling her telling Eloise telling Marianne who I believe within the film has discussed trying to um, ensure that she did not become pregnant whenever she was sexually active, whether she had an abortion or not. And then Eloise, who went on to have her own child, it just doubles down on this insistence within this construct that women are reproductive incubators to have children and whenever they meet a connection between one another or whether it's with a partner where they don't want to have a child, it's something that is insisted upon should not be happening within the 
romantic scape within the heterose- heterosexual uh, zeitgeist. I was talking to Julia. I remember watching this scene and thinking, I don't know what Celine is trying to tell us with this because it felt like removed from their love story. But even now I'm thinking, as Julia was talking about how their relationship has that looming presence of the patriarchy in a different way that Sophie does and how the fact that their love is influenced by the way that they are um, expected to act in society and Sophie's um, expectations are different, but they are also influenced by the patriarchy. And so like they are watching her implications and her consequences to um, love that she's experiencing in a different way. And I don't know, that was really striking to me. Uh, The movie that kind of dawned on me while you were talking about that was Love, Simon. When uh, in that movie, when Simon comes out to his family and the way that his father handles that is through that sort of stifled, awkward laughing. And so that, that kind of dawned on me. It was like as a defense mechanism, how humor can sort of like push you through to sort of like cope with something that maybe you have a deep seated aversion to. So uh, I don't know if that's the same thing, but uh, yeah, just kind of something that just flew my head through my head. But uh, you were going to say something, Will? Oh, I just wanted to say that one thing that also struck me about uh, these scenes in particular was that there is something, as we mentioned, like that's very young and passionate about their relationship. But in that moment um, or the moments leading up to it where I'm thinking like her on the beach where she's like running back with forth between them. And then like when they they're making that um, I don't know what it was, but it was like some kind of like a, like a drink or like a soup yeah. kind of thing. Um, there is like this like inherent motherly relationship that they have with the servant lady. Mm-hmm. And um, I think her name's Sophia or Sophie, right? Sophie. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Sophia. And um, it just. Uh, such a different dynamic than what we see throughout the rest of the movie, but it does also add to the film's context and commentary in a way that I found very intriguing. And um, yeah, as uh, we were mentioning here, I forget who it was, but yeah, at first when it was going on, I wasn't 100% sure what it was adding to the narrative and how it was fitting into it. But definitely uh, upon reflection, I really appreciated that she incorporated that into the film. I do want to point out a uh, couple things. One, we we didn't really get into the the part of the story where Eloise is. Well, part of the reason she doesn't want to be painted in the first place is because she get married. Son. Well, there's that, and there there's the idea that she literally would be objectified through a painting. And I'm like, mm-hmm. dang, that's like that's just good writing. But then also the fact that her it's she's like. 1805, baby. <laughs> well, she's like the second choice, right? Her older sister is the one who is supposed to be be married off to this man, and right. she killed herself. And so, like, the movie dabbles with like so she found second place, right? And and it's just sort of like I I can't even imagine the headspace that this woman must be in, you know, like to to think that she has no say in this matter. Uh, yeah. And then getting a little bit more into like the, the Sophie stuff. And I think we we talked a little bit about how this film both does and maybe doesn't avoid some of the misery tropes of LGBT, LGBTQ films, you know, where it's like, oh, the, all these bad things need to be happening because love between people in this community is hopeless. Like that, that's the, the common criticism and rightfully so. I was like, can't, they just have a love story where they're in love and like, it doesn't have to be like the world is against them uh, in every single respect. Uh, that was something that I was wondering over the course of the movie is like, Oh no, like, are they going to get caught? Is Sophie going to catch them? And I think something that struck me about that's the abortion scene was that it was at that point that I realized, no, that's not what the film is doing. Um, she's not their foil. Like she's not the one who's going to catch them. The mother's not going to catch them. Like that's not the point of this movie. There's not going to be a scene where their love ends up becoming just another like thrilling sprint to a climax. And um, that that could be a good transition into like talking about the ending of this film in particular. But I guess I guess that's my take. I don't know if anyone agrees, disagrees, or whatever. But uh, are we ready to talk about the three endings? Are we going to do it? Let's do it. Yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Uh, Julia Tatey, 
Former yeah. Cinemaholic who's returning. Um, yeah. <laughs> of the three endings, which one was your favorite, if you had one? The very last one. Okay. Emily, was yours favorite the very last one or not, maybe? Um. Okay. I guess we should characterize what, what yeah, are would the you three like, endings. We can. can we yeah. come to a decision on what the three endings are? So yeah. the very last yeah. From the very last and go forward, the very last ending is definitely Eloise crying mm-hmm. at the concert. Mm-hmm. The second to last ending, I would say, is Marianne coming into contact with the portrait, the portrait of Eloise That's with the page. Oh, okay, yeah. with the page that Eloise is oh, holding. Perfect. And the very first, the very first ending is the um, Orpheus. Eurydice? Eurydice? Eurydice. I think it's Eurydice. Eurydice. Yeah. Eurydice ending when Eloise comes down the stairs in her mm-hmm. white gown and Marianne mm-hmm. has right. to look back at her. And it's the same thing that's been haunting her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Throughout the entire movie. It's beautiful. I love that motif throughout yes. the movie. Absolutely. But um, is that the decision on the three endings I think that we're so. coming to? Yeah. Will Ashton, do you have any to add? Uh, no, those are the endings I thought of, at least. awesome um i love the last and the very last yeah but i think the first one is what it It literally got some diversity wow yeah it it hits you really hard um just like i think it made me just think of the memory of this like love story for her Mm -hmm. and how she is going to see her for the rest of her life yeah in that it's immortalized yeah and I think I appreciate the motif so much and like the nonlinear kind of remembering of this experience. And so um, I just, it was completely amazing. I also ending. feel like in juxtaposition to the very last ending, the last ending where Eloise is sitting at the concert and listening to that beautiful melody that Marianne had played for her on the harpsichord the very first ending where you have the Orpheus Eurydice motif carried through to that very last scene, that scene really kicks the air out of you where I feel like mm-hmm. the final one draws it out for so, so long. And it forces you to kind of confront those emotions where the very, whereas the very first one just kicks it right out of you mm-hmm. and makes you feel everything all at once. Part of the reason too is that there's not a lot of music in this no, movie. There so, isn't. There's not yeah. this like there's not this swelling feeling that you get. There's not a lot of um external exposition that you get from these other forces that are playing into your emotional uh reaction to what you're seeing on screen. And I don't think they need it. I think that mm-hmm. she knew that the images and the words were enough that we didn't need to be um played by the score to Mm -mm. like a certain certain emotion yeah we didn't need music Uh, but at the very end it 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 serves a story purpose so it's important definitely okay will ashton yeah which of the endings was your favorite and if you didn't have a favorite maybe you loved them all equally if they're they're like your kids um yeah i don't know i mean I definitely am glad they ended it on the ending they did. And I think that was the one that was like the most effective for the overall message and story of the film. But I think emotionally, the one that hit me the hardest was the second one. Oh, like that was that was the one that uh, kind of twisted my robotic heart and made me made me feel the feels. Uh, And I think I don't know. I just I love that each of these endings say something very specific and similar, but also very distinct about our relationship to art and especially like the first ending being that like how we perceive art and like how we can contextualize it. But then like only really in the moment do we understand it or like a moment like it, do we really fully appreciate or understand it? Um, and then I really appreciate the second ending for how it shows like, you know, like we, there's obviously this very tender emotional relationship and all these other people in the art exhibit are going to see just a very like, lovely portrait of a woman with her child, but it's obviously very specific in saying something very clear to this woman and very blunt, but it's also something that only they can share. And also I feel that 
talks about how like there's always been these romantic LGBT relationships throughout history, but they just haven't really been seen in this direct light by many people and many people contextualizing art. And then also obviously the ending, the last ending showing us that, you know, like this, she's always kind of going to be an observer and from a distance, but also very intimate and just was very touching. I just, I think, like I said before, some of the best endings of the past year by far. Yeah. And there's three. It's like yeah, almost one, two, three. Yeah. yeah. It's like she's showing off and she should be. Mm-hmm. But yeah I, yeah, I I think the big reason why the second one is my favorite. You touched on this a little bit with the first one, actually. I do really like how the the Orpheus story is paid off because I, I do recall them sort of like debating the movie or sorry, the movie. Oh, my word. Um, they were debating the story and like, why did Orpheus look right? Like, why would he do that? Like, was it worth looking upon them one last time? They were going to lose them forever. And just the payoff of Marianne can't help herself because of course not. Have you seen Eloise? And I think that the second, the second one, and it actually has a little bit to do with that way we perceive art as well because it's the scene where you think like oh, is she gonna is she gonna run into Eloise no she runs into the painting but mm. I think this entire movie is an allegory or it can be perceived as an allegory for what makes art good and that especially comes into fruition with the painting the first painting that Marianne does it's conventional it's boring it's pretty unremarkable as a painting because it's not at this point that she's put her heart and her honesty into the project. And then when we see, and, and, and I think Julia you t- or Emily, you touched on this of like the way that, you know, the, the subject is also watching the painter, the composer that gets paid off here too, because in that painting, the way that she's holding the book, page 28 that's still burned in my brain of that's the page where that reminds her of her because that's the image that of herself that she left for her that to me is like the way that art has like these easter eggs and i know what you're thinking of course john is all about the easter eggs and so like if it has easter eggs it's going to be his favorite and maybe that's true and it probably is but i do think that it, it serves this point that art is really awesome when an artist puts something in there that is just for them and john it, it the really what john is the art easter bunny <laughs> uh i'm gonna be in the next peter rabbit um <laughs> but as like a french <laughs> artist uh james corden um okay so that was my favorite and and so emily you talked a little bit about why that ending was your favorite but julia did you did you get a chance to get into more detail about the final ending being my favorite yeah yeah i think it was just kind of what you were saying i felt like the final ending with eloise at the concert was really more of a culmination for me and that just goes back to these different interpretations of the orpheus and eurydice Greek tragedy of, you know, for Marianne, the image of Eloise will either always be imprinted as that final look that she got of her in that white dress, that final portrait of her with her child, or the final time that she saw her at that concert and gazed upon her from across the theater. Um, But for Eloise, I feel like the only time that we really get that connection of that Orpheus and Eurydice um, tragedy on screen that that we can see beyond knowing that she has that page cliffed in the novel that Marianne left her portrait in is being able to listen to and see that final composition that Marianne played for her on the harpsichord performed and knowing that the visual language or the... Um, the the language of that music being played for her once again is that final imprinted image of Marianne for Eloise. I think that's a very beautiful thing. I think that it harkens back not only to that moment from the movie, but also just their experiences that they shared together. I think it's really beautiful. And just that close up on Eloise and her just slowly crying. I mean, it it, it it just demolishes your heart. There's no other way to put it. Absolutely. Um, 
Uh, any any final thoughts on Portrait of Lady on Fire before we bid adieu? Uh, it's the best. C'est magnifique. <laughs> Le film est incroyable. Oh, it's Celine Sciamma is here, everyone. Celine, how do we pronounce your name? If only. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, all right. Well, thank you, everyone, as always, for listening. This was a great discussion. Thank you, Julia and Emily, for joining Will and me for this great discussion. And I uh, hope you all get a chance to check out Portrait of a Lady on Fire. If you do or already did, please let us know what you thought of the film and what you might have thought of our discussion, anything you might have agreed with, disagreed with, or just want to echo what we said in, with your own unique take. Please go to cinemaholics.com. And go to the comment section and let us know. Uh, don't forget that if you would like to follow us on Twitter, go to our Facebook. Links to that are in the show notes. We're at Pod. And Julia Tady, where can the listeners find you online? You can find me on the Twitter.com at JLTET14. Mm-hmm. One four. It's like a sign-off, you know? And... Emily Kubin Kanek, uh, where can people find you and your writing? All the fun stuff you do. Uh, I, I'm on Twitter way too often um, at Emily Kube, K U B underscore, um, Letterboxd, Instagram, anywhere. All film right. School Rejects. Yeah, Film School Rejects. I say uh, you don't tweet enough, honestly. Ah, oh, man. You should, you should tweet more often. Um, also, I didn't know you were on Letterboxd, so this is my new project. Oh, dear. Okay, I yes, see I... how it is. We, <laughs> we have just not shared the Letterboxd um, exchanged follows, so that's got to happen. Um, yeah, right now. But yeah, so links to your Twitter and all of that, along with Will and myself, uh, are in the show notes, so check that out. Thank you again for listening, and with that, we'll see you all next time.